Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 39, The Esoteric Aristotle, Part 2. In the previous episode, we looked at two basic Aristotles. One was the great philosopher whose work came to prominence in the Roman Imperial period, and especially in late antiquity. And the second was ostensibly the same philosopher, only now viewed through the interpretive lenses of Platonist philosophy and popular historical fiction about Alexander the Great. This Aristotle, Aristotle II, was an esotericist. He had an inner teaching which he didn't share with everyone, and this teaching could be discussed in terms of initiation. He was also basically a Platonist of some kind. Our author's differ here in the ways in which they bring Aristotle's philosophy into line with their readings of Plato, but a fairly common, though not universal, tendency from the second century onwards was to read Aristotle as a kind of lesser member of Plato's school, with no significant contradictions between his thought and Plato's, but of course not quite as good as Plato. And the hermeneutic strategy often used to create this wonderful agreement was our favorite hermeneutic strategy the hermeneutic strategy of esoteric interpretation. This second Aristotle would be described by many modern readers of Aristotle as a misinterpretation or a kind of tendentious, twisted caricature, even. But we should be aware that this second Aristotle, as read by the Platonists, was at least as influential in subsequent reception of Aristotle's works as the Aristotle that you get if you just go ahead and read Aristotle on his own merits, and arguably much more influential. Now, we should add here that there was a very large corpus of commentators on Aristotle, and they were by no means all Platonists. Alexander of Aphrodisias is a very important name which springs to mind here. Alexander, not Alexander the Great, by the way, was by some estimations actually read more widely than Aristotle himself in late antiquity basically because he was easier to understand, because he's a commentary on Aristotle, he's explicating the obscure bits. But his interpretations of Aristotle would not normally be characterized as Platonist. He's part of what we might call the genuinely peripatetic tradition of reading Aristotle. Nevertheless, his own work becomes grist for the Platonist mill, just like Aristotle's work does. Plotinus, for example, who often disagreed with Aristotle on important points, but nevertheless wanted to use him as something like a Platonist who was just a bit dull and didn't really get Plato in all important respects, Plotinus used Alexander of Aphrodisias in his school lectures. So we thus have both Aristotle's own works and the peripatetic commentary tradition, what we might call the Aristotelian school in late antiquity, being absorbed into Platonism. And out the other side came Aristotle too, the esoteric Platonist Aristotle. So those are the two Aristotles of antiquity that we talked about last time. We're now moving forward in time a bit to late antiquity in its full glory, and from there into the Middle Ages. Here, we're going to find two more Aristotles. One of them, a philosopher, and one, an authority on occult sciences. Both of these Aristotles deeply influenced the development of Western thought, and particularly of Western esotericism, so it's very worthwhile to summarize the careers of these two imaginary men here, with a promise to our listeners to return to them in detail in the course of time. But firstly, to begin with a general note on Aristotle's reputation in the Middle Ages. We're going to generalize here, but it is safe to say that 
in all three Abrahamic traditions of the Middle Ages, Aristotle was the most prestigious ancient authority on philosophic matters, but also the safest. Plato, as we shall see, often came to be associated in the Islamic world, in the Eastern Orthodox Roman world, in Judaism, and in the Far West, with dangerously heretical ideas, and even with the idea of paganism. Aristotle, meanwhile, was domesticated quite thoroughly by medieval Abrahamic theologians and philosophers, to the point where he could be referred to in many Christian contexts as quite literally orthodox. Aristotle is the orthodox philosopher. Never mind that he was pagan, blah blah blah, he's orthodox. As you can imagine, medieval thinkers had to bring their own creative readings to bear in order to harmonize Aristotle's thought with that of their religion of choice, since Aristotle did come from a pagan pre-monotheist background. One nice example here, to whet your appetite for more to come, comes to us in the form of the pseudo-Aristotelian Liber de Pomo. No, not the book of postmodernism, although now that I think about it, it is kind of Pomo in its intertextuality. No, the title Liber de Pomo translates as The Book of the Apple. This was a 13th century Latin translation of a Persian version of an Arabic work in which Aristotle, on his deathbed, adopts Socrates' teaching about the immortality of the soul from the Platonic dialogue, the Phaedo. So you see what I mean about intertextuality. But the point here is this. We learn from the Liber de Pomo that Aristotle did teach an immortal, immaterial soul, so that we can have that doctrine, which we want in the 13th century, but we can deplatonize the doctrine. And by calling it Aristotelian, we both make it safe for use and we make it authoritative at the same time. Oh, and Aristotle's holding an apple in the story, in case you're wondering about the name. We'll come back to it. The apple, I mean. This wonderful example is just to give an illustration of a widespread process, which I've greatly oversimplified here, which was a process of Aristotelianizing what was in essence Platonic or Platonist material, taking ideas and swapping the name under which they travel to make them legit, and also of orthodoxizing Aristotle, if we can make up a word. So with that, let's turn to our philosophic pseudo-Aristotle, Aristotle III, the author of the Theology of Aristotle and the Liber de Causis, two Arabic philosophical works which had really enormous influences on all three medieval Abrahamic traditions. Here we should say a few things about the Islamic philosophic tradition by way of introduction. Islam comes into being in the 7th century CE. It quickly expands to become, under the Abbasid Caliphs, a truly vast empire spanning an area from Central Asia all the way over to Spain, with its capital at the newly built city of Baghdad. Good. Now, in Abbasid Baghdad, there was a particularly interesting and important translation movement through which scholars under Khaliful patronage translated really vast numbers of Greek, scientific, philosophical, historical, and other texts into Arabic, the new language of science, often via Syriac intermediaries, but nevertheless, going back to Greek sources. This was taking place from the 8th century onwards. So we imagine a newly founded world empire, which literally emerged, in some sense, from a semi-literate desert milieu, and in the process of absorbing all that is useful from the empires they've conquered, most relevantly the Sasanian Persian Empire and much of the Orthodox Roman lands, 
these imperial rulers set about absorbing their scientific and other useful literature. We shall have more to say about the translation movement in due course, but for now, two pieces of data are of crucial importance to our story. The first is that the works of Aristotle were avidly seized upon by the Baghdadi translators, and, for whatever reason, Plato's works hardly appear in the Arabic tradition in their original form. The works of Platonists, however, do. So authors like Plutarch, for example, had an important afterlife in Arabic, and thence later in Latin. So a lot of the Platonists end up being extant in Latin in the later Middle Ages, not because they were translated from Greek, but because they were translated from Arabic. So this is our first point. Aristotle was the unquestioned authority of the Greeks in Islamic philosophy. And in Arabic, you could even just say the philosopher, and everyone knew he meant. But crucially, and this is our second point, a work emerges from the translation movement which, for reasons which remain unclear, acquired the name The Theology of Aristotle, in Arabic obviously, and became immensely popular and influential upon Islamic philosophy, theology and esotericism as well. Now this book dealt with precisely the highest matters of metaphysics, which we don't associate with Aristotle. That's Aristotle number one from the previous episode, the actual Greek philosopher who lived historically. This work posits an ineffable one beyond being as the cause of all reality. What? This seems strange, as we admitted in the last episode that there is actually some truth in the popular idea of Aristotle as the sort of down-to-earth one, and Plato as more the father of these kind of ideas about ineffable, transcendent first causes, and so on. And there's a good reason for this. The theology of Aristotle is, in fact, a series of extracts from the Enneads of Plotinus, the father of late Platonism. So just to be clear, this is an Arabic selection and paraphrase of works written by a 3rd century CE Greco-Roman Platonist, but they traveled under the name of the 4th century BCE philosopher Aristotle. How exactly that came about, we don't know. The result is that whenever we speak of medieval Islamic Aristotelianism, and if you want to speak about Western esotericism, you need to speak about medieval Islamic Aristotelianism quite a lot. What we mean is actually the works of Aristotle in Arabic plus a robustly late Platonist metaphysics of the ultimate reality, which places it much more in the line of what is typically known as mystical theology than Aristotelian philosophy. Through the theology of Aristotle, a transcendent, unnameable, unknowable first principle enters into Islamic Aristotelianism, one which had a huge influence on the development of many interesting theological ideas in Islam. And this influence continues to this day. The theology was also widely read as a genuine Aristotelian work in Jewish circles in the Islamicate realms, and so it had a seminal influence on medieval Jewish thought, which also continues to this day. And for those of you whose chief interest lies in the Far West, this document had a huge direct influence on Latin language philosophy through the translation into Latin of Arabic philosophy. People like Ibn Sina, or Avicenna, as he's known in Latin, as well as an indirect influence, because the theology was hugely influential on other branches of Islamic thought, which also got translated into Latin, including astrological and magical writings. And these, of course, go on to shape thought in the Latin West for centuries. So, so much for the theology of Aristotle for now. 
the story of the Liber de Causis is not dissimilar in its general outlines. This is a work originally entitled Kitab al-Idali Aristotelis fil Khair al-Mahd. So, the Book of Aristotle on the Pure Good, which is actually made up in large part of paraphrases of a work by the late Platonist philosopher Proclus called The Elements of Theology. The book on the pure good, traveling under Aristotle's name, gave another injection of high-octane late Platonist metaphysics about the transcendent first principle into both Islamic and Jewish Aristotelianism in the Middle Ages. And with its translation into Latin by one Gerard of Cremona in the 12th century, it entered into the Latin West as a newly rediscovered work of Aristotle, and everyone got very excited about it. And it traveled under the name of Liber Aristoteles de Expositione Bonitatis Purae, Book of Aristotle Expounding the Pure Good, or just the short title Liber de Causis, the book on causes. It then went on to have a strong impact in the scholastic period, since it's a work of Aristotle, who for the scholastics was the sort of church-sanctioned supreme ancient Greek philosopher and authority on everything. And while it soon became clear, once William of Moorbeke had translated Proclus into Latin, that what we were dealing with here was actually Proclus rather than Aristotle, the book nevertheless continued to be very influential. So when we get to scholasticism in the podcast, it'll become clear that the Liber de Causis plays a very important role in the formation of Western esotericism through this direct process of importation, the translation into Latin and then people working with it. But like the theology, it also had a complex web of less direct influence on the far west. So for now, we'll bid adieu to Aristotle number three, the medieval metaphysician who speculated on the highest realities. Both of the texts mentioned here will be discussed in great detail here on the Schwepp, and we'll be entering into the fascinating game of trying to figure out who exactly produced these texts, why they signed them Aristotle, and what happened next. But now, let's turn to Aristotle number four, the great medieval authority on magic, alchemy, and many other occult sciences. This Aristotle is the author of a book which has been called the most popular book of the Middle Ages. I refer, gentle listener, no, not to the Bible, but to the Secretum Secretorum, the secret of secrets, also sometimes known as the Secreta Secretorum, the secrets of secrets. And it does contain more than one secret, so I suppose that's a more accurate title. This book known in the Arabic original by the title of Kitab Sir al-Asrar. And you haven't read Aristotle until you've read him in the original Arabic. Now this book, The Secret of Secrets, has everything. It's a treatise on kingship and politics and statecraft more generally, but it also contains information on the occult properties of substances, on astrological influences, magic, numerology, occult physiognomy, medicine, and many more weird and wonderful things. So it's a sort of encyclopedic text, but with a definite bent toward the occult. We have hundreds of manuscripts of this text, with many variants, as well as lots of printed editions that keep popping up throughout the Renaissance from all over Europe, again with variants, and the real work of sifting them and their importance is still ongoing. Indeed, the work of addressing the Arabic original is still ongoing, 
And it's a very exciting direction of current research into Islamic esotericism. But let's back up a bit and address the pseudo-Aristotle more generally in his capacity as patron of all occult sciences to see if we can get a bit of organization to our treatment of what are actually quite a bewildering variety of texts. So the great Lynn Thorndike, in an important article published in 1922, laid out some groundwork for looking at Aristotle IV back in the day when no one was actually looking at this stuff, really. And he gives a sevenfold taxonomy of pseudo-Aristotelian works, which were important in Latin in the Middle Ages. There's a lot more material in the Arabic sources, of course, that never made it into Latin. But let's just look at the Latin stuff for now. We have a sevenfold taxonomy. Experimental works, works on alchemy, works on astrology, works on spirits, to do with spirits, occult virtues of stones, plants, etc. A couple works on chiromancy, that's palm reading, and some works on occult physiognomy, so that's telling stuff about people by examining their bodies, like that bump on your head indicates a Saturnian character, this sort of thing. And last but not least, the Secretum Secretorum, the Secret of Secrets, which is so important and so encyclopedic that it sort of demands a slot all its own in our taxonomy. So this framework gives us something to go on, and we see already that pretty much every occult science has Aristotle's name attached to it in some medieval manuscript or other. As we shall see when we approach the complex subject of alchemy and experimental science in antiquity, it is true that Aristotle's physical theories were a major ingredient in the melting pot of alchemy. But of course, Aristotle never actually wrote anything which we would identify as alchemical. We shall return to the fourth book of Aristotle's Meteorology, which may or not actually be by Aristotle, but which is nevertheless datable at least to the 3rd century BCE, and which may be our earliest surviving manual of chemistry, understanding the term loosely. And we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to alchemy and antiquity. However, Aristotle number four did write quite a bit on alchemy. So, incidentally, did Alexander the Great, although he wasn't quite as prolific an alchemical author as Aristotle. But it's quite cool to imagine Alexander sort of taking a break after a long day of battle in Afghanistan or whatever, and getting out his mobile alchemical laboratory to conduct some experiments, and then writing a a treatise about it addressed to Aristotle, presumably to be sent off back to the Greek homeland. As for books on the occult virtues of stones, plants, etc., which was a very popular genre in the Middle Ages, Aristotle here was a foremost authority. And it's again easy to see why, or intuitively easy to see why. Although he never wrote a genuine work on occult properties of stones, etc., he did discuss the ways in which he thought things like stones were generated. And this involves a whole theory of physics, which was very influential on these medieval ideas of occult properties. More on that, of course, later in the podcast. Turning to astrology, here again, there are fairly easily intelligible reasons for Aristotle's association with this science aside from his general reputation as an authority on everything, since, as we shall see in the very next episode, in fact, his work was the greatest single influence on how the West interpreted the cosmos from antiquity until the time of Copernicus. Through most of the history of the West, in fact, people lived in a roughly Aristotelian cosmos, and Aristotle's genuine writings do, in fact, lay out a theory of stellar influences. So, 
the kind of mechanism by which astrology might function, like the causal reason why you might assume or argue that astrology works, was there right from the beginning of the Aristotelian tradition, which is that the Aristotelian celestial bodies influence things happening on Earth. More on that in the next two episodes, when we shall ascend once again to the heavens and see what's been going on there since the Babylonians first brought mathematics to bear on the movements of the stars. We next come to pseudo-Aristotelian works on spirits. Now this is really interesting stuff, and it's really much too complex to do justice to in a survey like this one. What we're dealing with here is a number of works centered on what has been called spiritual or daimonic magic, also known as addressative magic, in that you are addressing entities um, and trying to get them to do stuff. This often takes the form of, among other things, recipes for making talismans to harness the power of the daimones. Now, we don't mean demons here when we say daimon. The idea of the demon is a Christian invention, of course, taking the Greek term daimon and making it exclusively evil. The daimon, by contrast, in its native Greek habitat, was simply a classical Greek term for a kind of lesser god. Or spirit. I mean, spirit is not a bad translation as these things go. We've seen Plato laying out his take on the theory of the daimones in the Symposium, where the daimones are intermediary entities between gods and humans. They're sort of the go-betweens. So just to be clear, I'm using the word daimon here and the term daimonic magic as a second-order term to mean any intermediary spiritual agency which mediates between humans and God, or the gods. So angels, for example, in the Christian tradition are daimones in this sense, and daimonic magic will be magic addressed to angels. There's probably a safer term to use as a second-order term here, one which doesn't have that tang of the demonic about it, but a spiritual entity is a bit cumbersome. And another problem with using the term spirit here is that spirit is also the general way in which we translate the term pneuma, and pneuma is something very, very different from a daimon, as we shall see in an upcoming episode on Stoic physics. Now, there'll be much more to say about the topic of daimonic magic, but we should just emphasize here that what we are calling daimonic magic has absolutely nothing to do with conjuring up the devil or evil powers or whatever. Nothing that ever appeared in a 1970s occult horror film is daimonic magic, even though it's awesome. Daimonic magic has to do with getting lesser spiritual agencies to do your bidding. Sometimes these agencies are seen as being evil, indeed. Sometimes they're seen as good. And most often they're seen as a mixed bag, depending on the tradition and the individual author in question. But in case anyone has it twisted, this kind of magic was hugely popular in all three Abrahamic traditions in the Middle Ages. People did argue a lot about what might constitute allowed versus illicit daimonic magic. But this was a de facto and often a de jure widespread practice. In other words, loads of folks were doing it, many of them even middle-of-the-road religious practitioners or even theological authorities. I'm talking about rabbis, ulama, and Christian bishops here to take some concrete historical examples of people we know had um, addressative magic manuscripts in their libraries. And many religious authorities spent a lot of time on the problem of why it was okay to do those rituals, but not okay to do those rituals, or why these talismanic images were 
kosher, as it were, but those were satanic, or pick your term of choice, for evil. To get to the whole story of medieval addressative magic, we'll need to look at a lot of late antique material, first of all, such as the theurgic theory and work of Iamblichus, and so on, and the hermetic texts. But what research in recent decades has made abundantly clear, and this is a wonderful bit of secret history, actually, that really does need to be more widely known, is that addressative magical practices were a medieval mainstay, at least among uh, the literate audience. We have ample evidence, for example, of Islamic talismanic magic aimed at invoking the powers of different celestial ruhaniyat. So these are spiritual beings, which may or may not be angels, depending on the source, which exist in the heavenly realm and which can help or hinder humans in various ways. And considering this not only acceptable within Islam, but even a kind of high-end Islamic practice for those who are really keen to get close to Allah. Or we might cite the clergymen and monks in the Far West, in the Middle Ages, doing addressative magical practices invoking angels to acquire secret knowledge, and thinking that this was an absolutely legit Christian thing to do, even an elite Christian practice. Now, Aristotle was a major authority in this sphere, and in this category of texts, Aristotelian texts on spirits, we can discuss the truly fascinating subgenre of the Aristotelian Hermetica. So, for listeners totally unfamiliar with the Hermetic writings, we shall not only be discussing them in the not-too-distant future on the podcast, but we're also hopefully going to integrate the most up-to-date scholarship on the Hermetica. But for now, Let's just say that Hermetic writings usually have the form of Hermes, the ancient Egyptian sage, discoursing on various subjects with some interlocutor. This is your basic Hermetic texts frame narrative. And we have texts, detailed work on which is just beginning, which are discourses of Hermes addressing, yes, Aristotle. Obvious, really, when you think about it. So, there's a 15th century manuscript containing a work entitled Liber Antimachis, or Antimachis, a wonderful work of astral magic, deriving from an Arabic book of the causes of the spiritual entities. That's the Ruhaniyat again. So, what we've been calling daimones as a general term. Discussing these astral Ruhaniyat, the making of talismans to exploit their influence or to protect against them in cases of adverse influence, all ordered according to the seven climes of the earth and the various celestial influences prevailing in each different clime. And the whole thing is a discourse of Hermes to Aristotle. Nice. So what we've done here is hopefully to have given a sense of roughly the kinds of texts that traveled under the name of Aristotle in the Middle Ages. Everything from very refined philosophical metaphysics to books on palmistry. So this is all by way of setting the stage for a very long and very involved and very detailed discussion of the, quote, Aristotelian tradition, or, quote, medieval Aristotelianism, which will involve numerous religious traditions, languages, translations, and mistranslations, and so on. It all gets very complicated. And so what we hope to have achieved in these two episodes on the esoteric Aristotle, if nothing else, is to have primed our listeners so that when they hear the words medieval Islamic Aristotelianism, for example, they're going to know that we're 
not just talking about people reading Aristotle translated into Arabic. We're talking about the works of Aristotle in an Islamicate reception, but also the works of Plotinus. Although medievals didn't know this until quite late. They thought they were reading Aristotle when they read the theology of Aristotle. The same goes for Jewish medieval theology. When we speak to scholars who specialize in medieval Latin Aristotelianism, say they work on Albertus Magnus or Thomas Aquinas, they're going to use the term Aristotelianism not to refer to an engagement with primary works of Aristotle that, say, modern classicists or historians of philosophy engage with, but rather with a very complex and sometimes very strange medieval Aristotelian corpus, which included works on talismanic magic, the occult properties of stones and plants, as well as some genuine writings of Aristotle, but filtered through the lens of medieval Islamicate thought. As will also become clear about Platonism in upcoming episodes, the name Aristotelianism hides under a seemingly innocuous title a huge shifting array of ideas. In the case of medieval Aristotelianism, these may or may not involve, in given instances, the metaphysics of transcendence, magic, alchemy, occult sciences more generally, scientific experimentation of a very empirical stamp, esoteric treatises on statecraft, palm reading, or even symbolic apples. And sometimes the medieval Aristotelian tradition even involves genuine exegesis of the works of Aristotle. But it never really involves just the reading of Aristotle's works. This is the point. Now, we've mentioned that Aristotle's thought on cosmology was very important. And by this we mean Aristotle number one, the actual philosopher whose ideas about the cosmos in antiquity sort of took over and ran the show for a couple of millennia after his death. So join us next episode as we return to the Hellenistic period for a look at Hellenistic astronomy, followed, of course, by a look at Hellenistic astrology. Listeners who've been impatiently waiting for astrology proper to come onto the scene are about to be satisfied. But before we turn our gaze upward again, it would be nice to bid farewell to our medieval Aristotles on an esoteric note. So here is a passage from the De Naturis Rerum of Alexander Neckham, an English author writing in the 12th century in Latin. Neckham's work on the natures of things is a fairly typical late medieval encyclopedic work, with a lot of great stuff incidentally on the liberal arts, but we are concerned with his section outlining the different vices, the different kinds of faults that humans can labor under. Under the heading of jealousy, we learned that Aristotle's esotericism was so extreme as to amount to crass jealousy of the worst kind. Neckham says, quote, in a loose translation, but I would hesitate to commit to writing that Aristotle might have labored under such a lethal plague as envy, had I not resolved to give such a pernicious monster, namely envy, a good beating. So, when the aforesaid philosopher was about to go the way of all flesh, he ordered that his most subtle writings be hidden in his tomb, so that they should be of no use to posterity. But I know not by what power of nature or art, not to say by what prodigy of magical skill, he appropriated the area all around the tomb for himself, so that no one to this day should be able to enter. But what did he compose those writings for, since he made it impossible for anyone to use them? Some believe that the place mentioned, that is, the uh, area around 
Aristotle's tomb, will succumb to the wiles of Antichrist, and they think that he will read the writings deposited there. So on that note, a note of esotericism unto death and beyond, stay esoteric, at least until the Antichrist.